together. Thanks for listening to the KC Morning Show. Catch big-time college basketball at T-Mobile Center on November 22nd and 23rd as K-State, Arkansas, Illinois, and Cincinnati battle at the Hall of Fame Classic presented by Hotels.com. Get tickets at HallofFameWeekend.com or the T-Mobile Center box office. On January 11, 1970, victory belonged to Hank Stram and his Kansas City Chiefs. TV9 News special report, close up the flood of 77. From the Kemper Arena in Kansas City, Missouri, it's Milwaukee Bucks against the Kansas City Kings. Now Kansas Cityans must decide what happens next. What is to follow the city's Holy Week riots? I am here at the American Royal World Series of Barbecue. Daryl Motley awaits, and the Kansas City Royals are world champions. Professor Harvey K., my brother, aren't you a sight for some sore, radical eyes, my friend? (laughs) How are you, Professor K.? First of all, the feeling is mutual, and I'm feeling very upbeat, very upbeat, in spite of the fact that I shouldn't. Together, we should both continue this upbeat feeling. Right now, we're riding a high. In fact, this may be the first time that we are both feeling good about how things are going. We both could enjoy a victory Monday, you might say. I got my coffee. You got your tea. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs> you know, we've got Packers Chiefs coming up in a couple weeks, I think. Yeah, I can tell you that right now, if this were a Green Bay audience, I wouldn't say this. <laughs> but as I'm talking to Kansas City people, I'm going to tell you, I hope we kick the shit out of you. However... <laughs> However, as I believe we're playing in your stadium, I'm not confident at all about that possibility. I think Kansas City's a much more likely victor on that day. But we know what we are committed to doing today, Professor K. We are committed to reclaiming that radical history, taking back America as we do every week on your KC Morning Show. Now, I think we have established some excellent context up to this point. Last week, we talked about the 1776 con mission, as we coined it, that document put together by the Trump administration. And I kind of wanted to keep that vibe going, the, the current events vibe of it all, Professor K. Well, if you don't mind, if I can explain to our listeners, we were supposed to be discussing Susan B. Anthony's defense of her right to vote. She voted in 1872, was arrested and fined $100, though she didn't pay it. But Kitty could not attend the event today. So we agreed it might be a good idea to postpone. And just to let everyone know, we talked about doing Walt Whitman, but we weren't really prepared. We were going to wing it. <laughs> Winging Walt Whitman. <laughs> Winging Walt Whitman. You got it. So then you came up with the good idea of taking a break from the past alone. And let's talk about the crisis of our own moment. Right. That's the whole reason why we are doing this show, Professor K, taking what we know, because we've got we've got the history. We've got the radical history that sometimes we look around in circles, but hey, we've got it. And now we got to move forward because that is the whole point of being a progressive. Right. In the future, at least a couple of weeks set aside where we'll do Franklin Roosevelt, who would be a very good addition to this conversation. And I will bring him to bear on it. But I also want to point out that I will cite Lincoln along the way too, if you like, to bolster my lament of what's going on in D.C. right now. You want to break this down, Professor K? Do you want to talk? Do you want to talk the most thrilling subject of all the subjects? Infrastructure? (laughs) (laughs) Ah, yes, infrastructure. Two bills, as we know, sitting on the desks in D.C. 
One of the bills is the so-called bipartisan infrastructure bill, which is at least $1 trillion, which was supposed to be dedicated to what we think of as hardcore infrastructure, roads and bridges, maybe dams for all I know, and damn it, you know. <laughs> but it's definitely roads and bridges, that much we do know. And by the way, I have no reservations in saying it. I hope people don't take this the wrong way if they think that we shouldn't address that because climate change is pressing. The fact is that I cannot get out of my mind the nightmare, the horrors that people were put through and the deaths that resulted when the interstate highway bridge collapsed in the Twin Cities. That haunts me. And, and I will also add that the uh, American Civil Engineer Society, they basically gave the American public infrastructure like a D or a C minus, a terrible grade for the state of our infrastructure. It was addressed in part under Obama, but only in part. I mean, I don't know about Kansas City, but here in Green Bay and Wisconsin, which always prided itself, probably embarrassingly so, on good highways and roads. Man, it's like driving on Swiss cheese with holes in it these days, without the, without the rubbery effect of the Swiss cheese, you might say. So we know that roads need addressing. We know that. If only for the safety factor. The bridges are in trouble if they don't get repaired or replaced and so on. So that's the one bill. The other bill is a $3.5 trillion, for lack of a better way of putting it, I'll call it the social infrastructure bill, because that addresses questions of preschool school education. In the initial rendition, it was supposed to expand on Medicare. It was supposed to provide for dental work, eye care. I mean, it was going to improve Americans' lives, undeniably, especially given what we know about the state of, of America's mental and physical health in light of the pandemic. And I'll note, as I think people may recall, this was supposed to be a $6 trillion plan should well have been a 10 trillion. This nation needs to remember that basically some of the greatest projects were accomplished by going big, right? Whether we're talking about, now I'll mention it, Abraham Lincoln and the Homestead Act, Abraham Lincoln and the Land Grant Act, which we've talked about, Franklin Roosevelt, my God, I mean, that was a, a radical transformation in the American landscape and in Americans' general welfare, the New Deal. And it empowered working people at the same time. And even though it did not accomplish the end of Jim Crow in the South, even though it did not afford African-Americans in the South the vote that they had the right to, the fact is that it did reshape the lives of many, and it gave hope and propulsion, decided propulsion to the civil rights movement that in the course of the 40s, 50s, and ultimately in the 60s. And if I can, Americans support that. They support that big action. I mean, Reagan, the Reagan revolution, I think, is also showing that Americans respond to big social change. And Reagan's point, we went the wrong way, but we're receptive to that. Yeah, I mean, Eisenhower, not general, but President Eisenhower, signed off on the greatest single infrastructure plan, the interstate highway system, which we can criticize undeniably, but it was first envisioned under the Roosevelt administration during World War II, and Eisenhower was well aware of the imperative of moving people from one place to the other, having been general of the army. So the fact is that th there are precedents on the Republican and the Democratic side to go big. But of course, the Republican Party today only wants to go big in terms of ripping off workers, ripping off people of color, ripping off women of their rights. The trick is to get this stuff through. But we know 
that it is stalled, it is stymied, it is being subverted, and pieces are being withdrawn. The original plan was, as I said, $3.5 trillion over a 10-year period. I remember last week hearing, well, you know, we know Manchin and Cinema and half a dozen of the corporate Democrats in Congress, the House said is, they've been opposing it in many ways because of the taxes involved, because of the empowerment of people, because they don't like the whole idea of entitling people to anything to despite the fact that these are public goods and it's our money, you might say. We know, we know that it's run out of steam, but let's go back. Let's go back to the beginning of the year with a touch maybe to the whole election season. Americans, as you said, want to go big. There's little doubt in my mind that if Bernie were president, that he would face similar obstruction, but somehow or other in the course of these past nine months, and that's what I want to talk about, he would have found a way, if you like, push back remove, transcend the obstructions. Now I'll explain to you what I mean by that. When Bernie was campaigning back in 2015-16 against Hillary Clinton for the nomination, and this time, to some extent, he said the same, when people would say to him, you know, you'll have opposition in Congress, or what about the Supreme Court? And he said, well, that's when Americans are going to have to step forward and make themselves heard. He actually said, you're going to have to stand outside the Congress and let those folks inside know what it is you want that I'm trying to secure with you. As I used to say about Bernie, a good reason to vote for Bernie versus anyone else is trust not the candidate who says they want to fight for you. Trust the candidate who encourages the fight in you. Bernie, had he been elected, would probably have known because of his affection for FDR, which he doesn't make enough of, by the way, just for the record. But Bernie would have known that it wasn't a matter of trying to reach across the aisle only, or for that matter, negotiate with the likes of Manchin and Cinema, the senators from West Virginia and Arizona, who are really pains in the you-know-what. Cinema, I have no I, I don't even understand her. Manchin is just literally strikes me that he's got too much of a stake in not paying more taxes, in making money off of the coal industry, you name it. Being on boards at the present. Yeah, right. <laughs> Sounds like corruption to me, but what can I say? Well, anyhow, so the point is that what Bernie would have known to do, which Biden did not do, has not done, is he would have not only done all of the things Biden might well have been doing these past nine months, but Bernie would have actually gone out to engage Americans in pushing hard and pressing hard in demanding an expansion of Medicare, an enhancement of the American infrastructure, of providing for the needs of Americans in terms of employment, in terms of creating and refashioning the American landscape. Now, what does that mean? Well, of course, if most Americans agree, you'd say, well, why would he have to go out and do that? Because it's one thing, public opinion. It's another thing, public engagement. And Bernie would have known to turn out and rally people. I mean, Bernie was really good at rallies. And especially because Bernie, in spite of his age, he brings out young people. If it was only people under 50 voting these last 10 years, Bernie would have been president twice, I think. I'll pivot. I'll pivot to Biden. I won't go on and on lamenting Bernie not being president. Biden has not done the very things that need doing to get people to push. Now, I don't even think that you have to encourage the entire citizenry to turn out because most people across the country want this and they have voted and made clear their intentions. There are the places where you've got to target your political energy, or as we've heard people say over these last 20 years, political capital. If I had been Biden, and I'm basing this on FDR. In fact, let me tell a story about FDR, Franklin Roosevelt. Franklin Roosevelt 
had to live with the Southern white supremacists in Congress. He had to, because they chaired the committees in Congress. The way these things work is in Congress, it's seniority that leads you to a position of chairing a committee. And in the South, back in the 20s, the 30s, 40s, the fact is, once you were elected, you were elected for life, practically. Why? Because it was a one-party region of the country, and the one party were the Democrats, aka later the Dixiecrats. The point is, they were white supremacist, reactionary members of Congress and the Senate. I mean, not all. There were those who, you know, sort of stood aside. But generally speaking, Southern white Democrats dominated the Congress because they could chair the committees, which meant if FDR was going to get the New Deal enacted, and we're going to go over this at length when we get to Franklin Roosevelt's speeches, it meant that he had to put up with the crap that they might come back with. The post-Civil War amendments, the Reconstruction Amendments, meant that you could not legislate on race. But it is the case that they figured out how to legislate on occupation. So back in the mid-30s, when the Social Security Act was passed and the National Labor Relations Act were passed, they excluded certain categories of workers from being included in those two bills, those two acts. The two categories they excluded were agricultural workers and household workers which meant most effectively the Southern whites were going to keep Southern agricultural workers out of Social Security and out of the right to organize unions. It also meant, by the way, that they were essentially excluding Mexican-American workers throughout the Southwest, which California planters were very happy to do. I mean, they were, they were as brutal as any property owners in America. Just watch Grapes of Wrath in film if you don't have time to read the book. But the other thing is, and this is interesting, is that for many years in the North, household workers were often Irish women immigrants. So there were those other folks who got excluded. That's the first thing to remember. The other thing, however, is that Southern Democrats wanted the money of the New Deal to pour into the South. So they weren't going to oppose it, New Deal overall. They were just literally going to find their way of excluding, especially African-Americans, from enjoying the benefits of, of many of these things. But here's the thing. In 1938, Franklin Roosevelt, people could see me right now. I'm putting my hand above my head. I'm saying Franklin Roosevelt had put up with enough shit when it came to the worst of the bunch of those Southern Democrats. And what he did is he decided he was going to try to purge the party of the worst elements. I believe he named eight in particular he wanted out. Okay. And he would endorse basically the opponents. He decided as a brave act on his part, people forget this. He himself would go down south. The Democrats would always win the elections. So it wasn't like he had to campaign to do that. So he went to Georgia, which had pretty effectively kept African-Americans from voting. Poll taxes were very effective in those terms. They were so effective that they literally excluded a hell of a lot of white rural poor as well. In fact, I think in Tennessee, for example, I think it was more whites were excluded than actually blacks were excluded. The white property didn't care. They just wanted to basically keep poor people from voting. So here's the deal. He went down to Georgia, which at that time was run pretty much, I guess, by, the, by a guy named Talmadge. He was the governor of I don't think he was a senator, but the point was he was going to target certain figures. Basically, he starts off and he points out that the South is really a drag on national recovery. Why? Because it's essentially feudal. He actually did use the term feudal, F-E-U-D-A-L. And he goes on and he says, it's imperative that we raise the wages of working people in the South for their sake and for the sake of the nation. Purchasing power caused the Great Depression. The big capitalist corporations were literally not paying their workers enough and workers were producing more than anyone could even afford to 
to buy. So part of the New Deal years initiatives included the idea of raising the wages of workers and the incomes of farmers. And then he says, and everyone knew who he was talking about, these white supremacist Southern reactionaries. He said, if you believe in feudalism, you believe in fascism. He was telling Americans that he was prepared to fight for these things, which of course is one of the reasons they loved him. As one Southern textile worker from North Carolina wrote to the White House in 1940, in fact, he said, you know, you're the best president ever. You're the only one who really understands that my boss is a son of a bitch. Love that. <laughs> when I came across that letter, I thought, this guy is good. This guy is really good. So the deal is that FDR should have served as an example to Biden. Now, what does that mean? Well, Biden is facing opposition from Manchin, senator from West Virginia. West Virginians need the infrastructure bill. They want the infrastructure bill to become the infrastructure act. And they want the social infrastructure bill to become a law, an act. They want the money to flow into West Virginia as it would flow into other states. Biden, what he should have done or what Bernie maybe should have done is gone to the White House, said, Joe, not Joe Manchin, Joe Biden. Joe, it's time that you and I went to West Virginia. And I understand the other day, Bernie himself did go to West Virginia. He should have taken an entourage with him, however. And he should have said to Joe Biden, look, let's not wait around. We saw what these guys are about. They wouldn't pass the $15 an hour minimum wage. Let's preempt their effort to block us on infrastructure. Let's go to West Virginia. And here's what you should do. Call the other Joe, Joe Manchin, say to him, Bernie and I are coming to West Virginia. Bernie is very popular in West Virginia. Very, very popular. If they had gone to West Virginia, he could have called Joe Manchin and said, look, we're going to be campaigning. And he'd say campaigning. Yeah, we're going to campaign for infrastructure, for spending 3.5 plus the 1.5. We want to spend a few to several billion, billion, what am I talking about? Trillion dollars on these things. And Manchin would have said, oh, you're going to come to my state and try to do that? Yeah. But listen, you can join us on the platform and support it, or you can sit on the platform as we basically smack you around rhetorically, or you can stay away, in which case we'll make it clear who the opponent of all of the things that you need, the goods you need and the services you need, who that person is. Well, that's what they should have done. And you gamble. And maybe Manchin would have said, Joe, I'll be there. I'm with you. Let's make it happen. Can we talk? Maybe we can tinker a little bit with something. And Biden could say, well, you can tinker a little bit. Let's talk before we go. But you can't undermine the $3.5 trillion that Bernie has crafted as chair of the Senate Budget Committee. And then Biden should have reached out and asked the squad, especially AOC, who's very popular with young people all across the country. Hey, you want to join us? We're going down to West Virginia. Why don't you join us? You and Bernie and I are going to basically, we're going to raise a little hell down there because we want to end the hell that too many people in this country are suffering. How's that? Why didn't we raise a little hell? Yeah. Now, don't misunderstand. The fault is us too. I mean, we failed because we were waiting, I believe. We were waiting to hear Biden call us out, which by the way, FDR did. FDR called out work working people in 1935, he actually basically told working people, you know, his laws are going to be are going to be enacted, but laws in themselves do not bring the new millennium, which is to say you're going to have to turn out. And in fact, companies created their own arsenals literally to shoot workers if they had to, to prevent workers from claiming their rights. Well, I think we've probably transcended, you know, the worst case violence of those years, though what we saw on January 6th when the right wingers stormed the Capitol building, tells us that there's dangers afoot, dangers abound. Nevertheless, Biden failed. The 3.5 trillion, I'd be 
I'd be amazed and shocked and I'd be willing to party if it passed. Oh, I'm seeing now, Harvey. I'm, I just got an update. Maybe 1.9. Yes. You know, when they started talking about cutting, I thought, well, there is a way to cut. The 3.5 trillion was supposed to be 350 billion over each year for 10 years. So why not say, okay, we're going to go halfway. Five years, we'll cut it in half. But I don't know if the 1.9 has is going to be over 10 years or five and it's over 10 then we've been screwed we've allowed a real as my father used to say to avoid a worse word we've allowed a real schmendrick like mansion to literally subvert the future of this country and i would even add of the planet i i wanted to go back to what you said you know we have to get out more you know bernie his message resonated but we didn't turn out the Democratic Party at large, they always say, go vote every four years. We need you to go vote. Come on, USA. But they don't give us a reason to vote. And and then they play this appeasement game and we get stuff like this bipartisan infrastructure bill, which I would argue, and I think you might be with me, is not just a bad bill, but it's a detrimental bill. And we always have to cater to the reactionaries. And so we take a good bill and make it not so great. I don't think people are talking about this enough. Our entire energy model is shifting because of this bill. Natural gas was supposed to be the pretty clean thing that's going to take us to the, the new green economy that I thought I heard President Biden talk about on the trail. But this bill literally says our new direction is hydrogen, which you can make out of. Oh, imagine this. You can make it out of coal. Huh. Imagine oh, that. God. Oh, imagine that. I wonder how that got in there. Oh, my God. So what do we do, Harvey? You know, I don't know if people realize that 1.5 of the so-called bullshit bipartisan bill added to the 3.5. That would have been a $5 trillion bill. If, but what they did is, and what a scheme. So they create that bill, which literally becomes, if you like, the more important bill to too many of these folks. And fortunately, Pelosi held out for a while, but maybe she knew and then they couldn't get everything they wanted. And, you know, they negotiate this or that. And I mean, it's very, very disgusting and disgruntling and, and disappointing. And all. But I want to tell people a crucial part of that big $3.5 trillion project. It's something that can't be measured quantitatively. The divisions in this country are reminiscent almost of the 1850s when the United States was headed towards a civil war, when the Southerners were already scheming as to how to enable slavery to spread nationwide and passing laws. And the Supreme Court was controlled by the most reactionary of Supreme Court justices, Roger Taney, I guess was his name. And basically, they ruled that blacks could not be citizens. And, you know, basically, they were opening the door to, to slavery forever and throughout the nation. And why were they doing that? Well, not simply because they wanted it, because they were truly afraid that slavery was doomed and they were going to do everything in their power to make sure it wasn't. Well, we now live in a time of intense division. I mean, the Trump years brought out the ugliest, the ugliest divisions imaginable around race and religion immigrants being viewed as dangerous, refugees being viewed as dangerous. I mean, it's, it, you know, people would say that's un-American. Well, it's un-American in the contemporary sense, but we've seen that before all too often in this country when folks like Trump, you know, get onto a platform and turn it into political power. Well, the thing about a $3.5 trillion bill, and they discovered this during the New Deal, is it compelled people who would not otherwise come together to work together on reshaping the American landscape and reshaping the American cultural landscape. And it was very much a part of the New Deal. You know, the term we might have used, it was a very much a multicultural endeavor, but more the case, it was decidedly an American endeavor. And so, for example, in, in much of the country where the Civilian Conservation Corps 
camps were set up. These kids from various parts of the country, they came together and they had to learn to work with each other. And the letters that they sent to the White House, to FDR, indicated a new appreciation of the fact that they were Americans. Now, I'm not going to gloss over the fact that racism was not addressed by way of the Civilian Conservation Corps or many of many of the other projects. Southern Democrats made sure once they saw the camps first being set up, possibly integrated, they decided, "Uh uh-uh, all white camps, and then there would be black camps. The main thing I'm getting at is that I think we could have cultivated by way of a $5 trillion, $6 trillion project, a new sensibility and a new understanding of what it means to be an American. Because young people would have, young people who are more open-minded, I, I would I would hope about these things, would have come together and not simply mouthed the right things. They would have come together in real solidarity in refashioning the American landscape and making, making their own lives better and the lives of their fellow Americans better. That, to me, was a fundamental that just never got spoken. Of. Well, Biden barely spoke of what this would mean for the United States. Instead, he was talking about the soul of America. And I don't mean to take anything away from people who believe in souls and all of that. But the fact is, I didn't need to hear about the soul of America. I needed to hear about the S-O-L-E-S, the souls of Americans, their capacity to walk together. It's like you said, we're not going to get a chance to really celebrate this. We do this show for a reason, not to stew at the end, because we look forward to the promise of it all. It's such a bummer that instead of talking about these programs, we talked about the number that led the narrative. Yeah, we're going to be built back better late than never, but I do think that we still need to We need to celebrate those things. This is the reconciliation bill. While the programs won't last as long and they won't be funded quite as much as we wanted, we didn't get the climate stuff we needed. It is going to be transformative. And I think that's okay to say, right? Yeah, that's the key word, transformative. You know, there were two great transformational presidents. Well, you had Washington, who was the initial president of the United States. But Lincoln and and Roosevelt were transformational presidents, transformational leaders, not because they themselves signed into law certain things. That's fundamental. It's that they engaged Americans, engaged Americans in transforming the country. And, And Biden just didn't get to that. So here's what I think. Okay, I think if they can get two trillion dollars through, you know, great. But it's just not going to have the impact that we need to have happen. And by the way, if the Democrats truly are going to fail their fellow citizens by cutting things 60% or whatever else, I worry that Americans will not turn out to vote. Democrats, Democratic-inclined voters will not turn out in 2022 and will lose the House. It may not be you know, any better in 2024. So I'm not going to get all pro-democratic party right now and say, we got to vote anyhow. No, I can't do that right now. But I can tell you this, if you are hearing this in West Virginia, if there's any chance of making a difference, gather some of your neighbors together, make yourselves heard ASAP. The future of the United States is hanging in the balance. And honestly, Hartzell, I know we like to end on a high note, but 1.9, it's just not inspiring. But Harvey, someone is listening to this right now and they are fired up and someone might go run for office and try to change that. Or someone may talk to their friends and say, hey, maybe it's time for us to unionize, you know? Let me set a good example to people, okay? Let me first of all say that I am a labor unionist. I'm retired, but I belong to the American Federation of Teachers as a member of the Retiree Council, Retired Council. Oh, let me just say, for those of you who have access to the internet, and if you're listening to this, you obviously do, this coming Tuesday evening, this will fire you up. I retired a year ago, and for many, many years at the university, I ran a speaker series. I founded and ran a speaker series on a very limited budget. I brought in major folks to speak, you know, artists, intellectuals, academics, journalists, actors who performed one 
person shows, had 150 to 175 people to the university over the course of 30 years. Most of them stayed here at a little house. And I guess the university felt uh, it was time to recognize what I was doing on a bigger scale. So they have decided they are going to relaunch the series now that I've retired. And they are calling it the Harvey J.K. State of Democracy Lecture Series. Congratulations, Professor K. And this coming Tuesday night, the first speaker, who also happens to be a friend of mine, though I did not organize this event since it's in my honor, not my doing. One of my young colleagues who's taken over in my place named John Shelton, who we definitely have to have on the show sometime. Absolutely. John Shelton knew of my interest in trying to bring Sarah Nelson, head of the airline flight attendants, to speak in Wisconsin. I had it, had it all arranged, by the way. And then the pandemic struck and it was all canceled a year and a half ago. So he decided, hell, let's start where we should have been going. So he asked Sarah to come out to speak in my honor of my legacy, you might say. And if anyone doesn't know who Sarah Nelson is, let me make it clear. She is, in fact, the leader of the airline flight attendants, which is an international union. They are a very, very dynamic labor union. And Sarah herself is probably, I'll use the word, greatest labor leader in America right now. If you recall, Donald Trump several years ago shut down the government and Sarah organized her union and some other unions to say that if you're going to continue this shutdown, we're going to shut down the airlines. We will go out on strike. It was a first threat of a general strike and Trump ended the shutdown of the government. She is an incredible young woman. Well, she'd say she's not as young as some other people, but she's significantly younger than I am right now. Sarah's magnificent. So anyhow, Tuesday night, seven o'clock at my university, she will speak. And the university has arranged a live stream of the entire talk and event. That's perfect. Eight o'clock Eastern, seven o'clock Central time. Here's what I'll do. I'll post the link in the show notes. That feeling we talked about, you know, maybe getting a little pissed off. Go Sarah's route. Use that energy and go change the world. You bet. Professor K, where can these folks find you on the internet? Twitter at Harvey, initial J-K-A-Y-E. I welcome all comers. My brother, once again, we we take back America. Who would have thought it'd be so simple? (laughs) (laughs) Watch out, Josh Hawley. My brother, we'll see you next week. You bet. You're listening to the KC Morning Show.